Thank you for coming to this, hopefully, and I, in fact, I know will be a very interesting debate about from AI, artificial intelligence to big data, can technology save the NHS? The first thing I'd like to say is there are no cyborgs or robots on the panel, as far as I can tell. No. <laughs> that wasn't can a you be resounding... Sure? Yeah, you can never be sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we are humans today, but we're obviously talking about technology and artificial intelligence. Um, I'd firstly like to thank our partner, the Royal Academy of Engineering, and uh, my speaker on the far left is uh, from them, and no doubt you'll talk more about them as well as part of your introduction. Um, but I think this is a very important, timely debate. Um, as we all know, the NHS it clearly needs some help, some assistance. Um, so, you know, are we witnessing a revolution in health care? Or is the promise of AI merely about, for example, improving just the access to services. Um, there's been a lot of talk about investment in technology in the medical and the health service, um, but sometimes these arguments are merely about improving perhaps about how services, including room bookings, are made. Um, is that really all we can expect from this technology? Or even on the other scale, um, there is many examples, thankfully, where we are getting um, the benefits from... Um, computing to scan medical records to spot trends and so on. So there is something happening here, and hopefully we can discuss this. Um, but again, in the context of using machine intelligence or machine learning, um, is it also perhaps taking away from human clinical expertise in the same moment? Um, so is there an imbalance between perhaps the uh, impetus around technology and even the withdrawal of human expertise um, happening at the same time? Is this also perhaps about, in the more broader clinical medical setting, that no longer as patients we perhaps trust the clinicians to make decisions on our behalf? So therefore, is this a debate to some extent about using technology because we no longer have faith in our GPs and clinicians to prescribe the right outcomes for us? So look, there's a lot of discussing to discuss here. I'm hoping amongst ourselves and the panel we're going to draw out lots of these issues. So the way it's going to work is I'll introduce the, the speakers in the order they're going to talk to you about their, their ideas um, for about 25 minutes. And then what I'm going to do for the next 60 minutes is open up straight to yourselves. So um, on my far left is Professor Mark Tooley, Medical Technology Consultant, President, Institute of Physics and Medical Engineering, also of the um, uh, Royal Academy of Engineering. Um, next to speak will be on my immediate left, uh, Tricia I've forgotten how to pronounce your surname. Greenhouse. Greenhouse. My apologies. Professor of Primary Care um, Sciences and Fellow, Green Templeton College, University of Oxford. Um, on my uh, right is Terry Barnes, Principal Commodrant Policy Advice, Fellow, Institute of Economic Affairs, former Special Advisor to two Australian Health Ministers. Then on my far right will be uh, speaking Dr. Isabel van der Kerr, CEO and founder of Immersive Rehab, which is about physiotherapy using virtual reality technology and some more stuff I'm hoping you can kind of tell us about. And then last to speak will be Tamandra Harkness on my immediate right, who's a journalist, writer, broadcaster, presenter, very interesting series called Future Proofing and author of a very pertinent book called Big Data Does Size Matter? So can we first welcome our speakers, please? Right, so without further ado, um, Mark, you have five minutes to tell us about what you think about these issues. Thank you, Martin, and good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much for coming to this session. You've got a choice, I know. So 
I, the question, can technology, which includes AI and big data, save the NHS? And I amused about what this meant. What does save mean? As, as we all know, um, the NHS is, is facing unprecedented demands. Sicker patients, many more older people with us with more mortality, more morbidities, and not enough money for the system. I've worked in the NHS all my life until recently I retired in the summer, and it's never been so <coughs> near breaking point. Uh, I've been there as an engineer, and I used to lead the Department of Medical Physics in my hospital. We loved technology, so this is a great session for me. We used it to treat patients, to make patient care safer and more effective. So can we use this technology to save the NHS, to make the system work together as a whole, be more affordable by being slicker, less errors, faster, more accurate diagnosis, patients in hospital only when they should be there, having things done to them, not waiting for things, right? So one a huge advance using technology has been making all patient data digital. The electronic patient record is in many hospitals now. And into this you can feed drug data, the physiological data like blood pressure, heart rate, from the monitors. This means that the records can be used anywhere in a hospital setting, in real time, without any waste. And in the GPs can see it as well. The data can be processed and look at trends, whatever. But having the data fully on computers has its own risk. As we, um, there's, there's a cyber attack last May, and it's been on the news the last couple of days. 81 trusts were affected. A thousand medical devices were, were, were corrupted. And 19,000 patient episodes were cancelled. My hospital in Bath, we were okay, because we put a lot of energy into worrying about this sort of thing. We had engineers and scientists um, trying to prevent this happening. We can use technology to prevent delays in hospitals, to stop patients being in beds with nothing happening. So artificial intelligence can analyse the simpler images and blood tests. We're, we've got a huge shortage of radiologists and pathologists. And also the, the computer can act as a second reviewer. Ideally, we want two radiologists to look at each image. But AI is only as good as the data entered. And this requires scientists and engineers to make sure the data is actually good. The AI doesn't cope with complex images. We need the radiology to do that, and they trump the computer every time. We can use technology to track all the equipment, staff and patients in the hospital. We do it already with equipment, but we can also monitor the staff. Where are the doctors? Where are they? And make sure they're in the right place at the time. And I did some experiments on this with, with the NICU nurses, because I knew where they were at the time. And patients can be monitored at home using quality-assessed monitoring technology. They can, we can have cameras watching them, which can, we can get their heart rate from their faces. We can see what's normality and get the computer to see if anything goes wrong. And we can have patients come out of hospital sooner uh, if we're not sure and have them monitored at home. Wearables must be used with caution. I know there's a session um, um, before lunch. Clever patches we're looking at using in hospitals. We know their data all the time. But they're only a research tool. The public wearables I think are notoriously inaccurate, often have no calibration, no preventive maintenance, and no backup at all. I played around with the blood pressure ones, and they get a blood pressure in, in five seconds, but it's not right. And <laughs> patients and public can think they're ill or not, and whatever. I think that's very bad. So technology cannot replace the skill of the medic. It only enhances it, and patients still value the human and social bit. Some of medicine's cure is the patient-medic med relationship. And I think very strongly that patients and public must be involved with the design and testing of any new technology. And it must work all the time. So we must not rush its implementation. So I think technology can save the NHS, 
but only then backed up by engineers properly designed by properly trained staff and in collaboration with the medics and the patients and publics must be involved with their design and implementation. Thank you. Okay, Tricia. Well, thank you very much. Um, hello, everyone. Um, I speak not only as a, a professor in the university, but also as a GP. And I've been looking at IT now for close on 30 years, actually. Um, I went last week to a lecture by Paul Durish, who's a computer scientist now working in, in the States. And, and a few years ago, he wrote a book where he talked about the proximate future, which is the time just around the corner when this technology is all going to fall into place. And we've been talking about that proximate future for at least 30 years. But in reality, around 80% of technology projects in the NHS fail. It's got a massive failure rate. Maybe it's 70%, maybe it's 60%. You, know, you can argue about that, but it, it, it's certainly not 1% or 2%. Now, why do technology projects fail? Because I'm not anti-tech, not at all. Um, but I am interested in... in the fact that a lot of the discussion and discourse and, and talk about technology in the NHS about what, are about what technology could do rather than about what it does do. Uh, and what my research focuses on is this mismatch between um, what we would hope that technology could do or what it might do in theory as opposed to what it does in practice and in an half clunky at the moment, the, I went to talk a couple of weeks ago by the new chief executive of NHS Digital, and she said the, the mismatch between the, the amount of really good technology that we've got in the NHS versus what's actually happening is huge. And that was what we, she was staggered by. And then she could talk to consultants who would say, well, hang on a minute, this is what I can actually do in the A&E department right now, as opposed to what I ought to be able to do. Okay, so one of the things I think we need to take account of is the conceptualization of a socio-technical network, a network of people, teams, if you like, connected through technologies, or bits of technology, bits of data connected through both technology and other people to other bits of data. You know, it's a web, it's a, it's a network. We can't just think about a technology as a, as a freestanding single thing. And that network is unstable and fragile and needs an awful lot of work to maintain it. Now, I think the big problem with that network is the complexity of delivering healthcare in a technology-supported environment. And complexity is something that we really need to get our heads around. Those of you who are not familiar with it, it's not, it's not really very hard, this. There's simple things, and the simple task I always talk about is like making a sandwich. It's very predictable. You just put stuff in the sandwich, etc. There's a complicated type of task, which, um, for example, building a rocket to go to the moon. It's complicated. There's a lot of bits, but really, it's also quite predictable. It's just a little bit harder. And then there's complex which is something that is dynamic and unpredictable and you're never quite sure what's going to happen. You have to kind of box and cox. Uh, and the, answer, the, the example of that is raising a child. The fact that you've done it once with one child doesn't mean that the same thing's going to work the next time. So I think one of the problems we have with technology is that we assume that the world is merely complicated, whereas actually it's complex. And there's a number of different aspects that, of complexity, a number of different domains which very often are in the complex rather than complicated or simple. For example, the condition that the patient has 
It's fine if they've got a simple condition like a sprained ankle or a complicated condition like cancer, where you've got to follow a lot of different guidelines. Um, but what about if they've got dementia? What about if they've got drug and alcohol problems, etc., etc.? The second thing that might be complex rather than sim simple or complicated is the technology itself. Not many technologies are dependable. Not many are um, predictable. Not many are substitutable. What if that company goes out of business? There's complexity in what we call the value proposition of a new technology. Will it bring a return on investment to the, the, the people investing in it? There's complexity in the potential adopters. Staff are worried about their, um, their jobs, actually. Is, is, this, is this going to you know, um, substitute for me? They're worried about their relationship with the patient, etc. Organisations are hugely complex, and we've got complexity in the regulatory system, in the political system, in the financial environment. And then if we give that a longitudinal dimension, we've also got complexity in um, the ability of organisations and technologies to adapt over time. Because one thing that the computer scientists have told us again and again and again is that unless something can adapt over time, um, that's why we always get upgrades, Will you try upgrading any piece of software in the NHS? It's, it's hopeless. You just can't do it. I've got my red card, so I'll stop there. <laughs> and uh, to the next one. Have, Thank you very much. I have so finished, much. actually. <laughs>
it's not necessarily welcoming it. It's 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 uh, it's questioning. It's a fear. Are we going to lose what we already have? Are we going to lose uh, uh, quality access to our doctors and nurses uh, and our hospitals? Are we going to be? Uh, um, how is this going to improve my life? How is it going to improve my family's life? And uh, uh, if you can't answer those questions adequately when you talk about embracing. Uh, technology, artificial intelligence, at all levels of the service, all levels of the system, then you, at the political end, uh, say if you're looking at from Jeremy Hunt's point of view, uh, you've got a political challenge. Uh, uh, because if you can't bring the people along, things are not going to change. And one of the things I've found in Australia, working in, in policy there for a long time, is that effectively politicians deal with the health system of a generation ago. Uh, we're obsessed in Australia with uh, funding public hospitals, for instance. We don't do enough on wellness and prevention. We don't do enough in terms of uh, giving general practitioners uh, more scope to do what they do. Um, and it seems to me that in these technological debates, we, we risk falling into that same trap, that uh, uh, the shiny new blink of technology uh, is, uh, is seen as the thing to do because it's there. But on the other hand, I think there are some other questions that I think we just need to, to I'd like to throw out for, for later, particularly in terms of uh, what it may mean for patients and consumers. Uh, if, uh, if, say, we're talking about wearable technology, for instance, uh, to what extent can service planners uh, expect to get access to that data and then uh, sort of assess your risk or put you in risk categories, perhaps in terms of prioritising you for treatment? Is that, is that ethically something that we... Can, uh, can accept? Uh, um, and can we also take for granted the, the value of things such as uh, personalised electronic uh, healthcare records? Because in Australia, we've spent billions developing a, a, a PCHR, um, but it's, it's actually hasn't got off the launch pad, partly because uh, uh, doctors themselves have refused to embrace it. Uh, patients themselves are sceptical of it, and when it is used, it's not actually used very well. So, uh, so say somebody with cystic fibrosis, for instance, ma uh, matters relating to their primary condition are not entered, but uh, coughs, colds and flu certainly are. So, um, so, so unless we can actually sort of join all these dots and manage the politics and the perceptions of change, uh, we can talk about AI and, and technological innovation in the, in the NHS and in health generally, but... Uh, reality is that it may not happen. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Isabel. Yeah. Um, hi. Um, so um, uh, I'm the founder of Immersive Rehab, um, and the reason why I started, so I'm an engineer myself, um, mechanical engineer, and then went to Dubai medical engineering. And uh, about seven years ago, I had an accident myself, so a work accident that basically left me out of work and immobile for a very long time. So I had no balance for about two years. I went through a long rehab period to get back to the person that I am today. And going through that rehab period left me often frustrated and demotivated and um, yeah, waiting often as well in the way rehab was being approached and so on. So um, as an engineer myself, I wanted to use technology to change that. And so some years went by, and then um, I look, was looking into um, some conditions going from traumatic brain injury to stroke to spinal cord injury patients, and um, started talking to lots of um, 
um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, mainly within the NHS, um, some outside as well, patients, individuals, um, to kind of understand from their perspective because I, I only had my own rehab experience so I wanted to get to know their experience as well and um, talking to them doing lots of user research I, I often got the response back from occupational therapists and patients and physios about the long waiting time within the NHS that patients would come in for example with a spinal cord injury and the average waiting time is about three months to nine months depending on the conditions that they have um, before they're actually transferred from the acute ward into a rehab facility. Um, and that puts, aside from the fact that they lose a really big window uh, of rehab of potential and gaining that mobility back, they also um, are very prone to falling into depression, which in most cases, uh, people that I met, they were either on antidepressants at the time or they had been on antidepressants because of one the long waiting time often or no post rehab when they are released in, out of the their initial kind of program of nine weeks and then they would um, leave the hospital again without really um, and this was more than in particular for stroke patients for example where um, they um, because of the lack of staff lack of resources lack of um, often they would focus on getting patients up and walking uh, but not focus that much on upper limb mobility. And a lot of stroke patients, they have one part of their body that would be affected. And so um, once they basically leave the hospital, their lower, their upper limb mobility has is too little. So on average, it's about 15% when they leave the hospital. And so because of their, the lack of post-rehab offered and also the lack of space and, and, and resources, um, they will lose a lot of that mobility again a lot. So it's 15% that they will lose on average. But that means that they will lose a lot of their lower limb mobility again as well because they start overcompensating. And I've met people that basically um, struggled very much with their life. And then basically they ended up going into the spiral of um, dealing with mental health issues and falling into depression and worse, basically... Uh, um, dealing with suicide cases. Uh, so, And that's why, basically, I um, started Immersive Rehab about two years ago. I made the link with um, using virtual reality to, um, to tackle issues in particular for stroke and spinal cord injury patients because often, and, and then in particular, those upper limb um, mobility issues is that a lot of those patients, they can't, they have lack of strength or lack of high motor skills, so they can't engage with objects. And so physios at the moment, they really struggle. One, they struggle with time, but also struggle with the tools that they have to help people gain more of that upper limb mobility back. So, um, and often now, like, there is technology um, that, but it's very expensive to actually buy within the the NHS hospitals, for example, and to have like a, a reach all over the, the NHS hospitals. So we uh, wanted to create a, t a technology that would over time really be accessible to everyone and the aim was really to create something that people could um, uh, do initially in the hospital a lot quicker because of the lack of waiting time to the kind of um, fill that gap but then also post their rehab they could do it in their homes they could do it if they can't go to rehab because of infection risks they could actually have it in their homes and do rehab in their homes um, to really give them an option because I think there's nothing worse for your health when you don't have any options to choose from. And so, yeah, 
I think that's what technology is all about, is to giving people options. Thank you. So last, by no means least, uh, Tamandra. When, uh, when I first saw the title of this session, Can Technology Save the NHS? Well, I admit my first thought was a lot of the cool tech that I've seen over the last few years, and I have got to go to like, IBM Watson and, and hold in my hand a, a little thing that the theory is that you would swallow it and it would sit in your stomach and monitor your health and possibly even deliver drugs. I would say the prototype, then I had this described prototype, was the size of my thumb. So I'm there in, uh, I think it was the Harvard MIT, I'm saying, really, and you expect people to swallow this thing? And then they said, well, no, this is the prototype. We've tested this on pigs, and even they wouldn't swallow it. We had to knock them out. <coughs> so that was my first thought, was, yeah, what's cool technology? But then my second thought was, I reread the question and said, well, can technology save the NHS from what? That's, that, that was the question, save it from what? Um, I'm, I'm sure you're all familiar with the background. The background is we are living longer. Uh, we've got an ageing population. All that is, is great, because we're basically living longer. Uh, medical care is getting better. So the stuff that can be done to keep us alive and healthy is improving. This obviously is massive extra drain on the NHS. It's more expense. It's more, there's more demand on the NHS. Uh, there isn't an infinite supply of more resources to go in uh, for you know, various reasons. So then what the question that's thrown to technology is, what can technology do? And we've, and we've heard a lot of this, and some of it is, is purely about efficiency. It's purely about if you put patient data in a form where it can be available to different doctors in different places at different times uh, and you can efficiently move around people and equipment and resources <coughs> that's clearly better than the pretty chaotic system we have at the moment. I mean you talked about the NHS being a sacred cow I don't love the NHS I love the people that mm. give their all in the NHS often in really ridiculously adverse conditions I don't have any particular love for the specific ways in which the NHS is organised now. And, and I'm not saying that because I think America is a great example. I'm saying that because I look at places like France and go, well, how come they do so much better? They don't seem to spend more and they have better outcomes and so on. So, yeah, I, I think we should, we should be flexible in how we do things with the NHS. But I, I think the problem is here that the things that are great for patients, the things that can really help patients in terms of better treatments, uh, yeah, be better analysis of scans through machine learning, uh, more efficient moving around of stuff, uh, better development of drugs and treatments. I mean, this, this virtual immersive HR, uh, HR. <laughs> immersive uh, rehab sounds, sounds fantastic. Um, let me stop this thing beeping. Yeah. Um, it is great but I don't think any of this is, is particularly going to save the NHS I think, I think this is the problem and one thing that worries me is I'm going to focus on a particular thing is that one of the things that's suggested is NHS can be helped to reduce demand through technology and this will be through wearables and monitoring and prevention and that patients will be I mean you, you suggested the idea that patients be put into at risk groups and, uh, and, you know, one, one suggestion is that, for example, I think they're already testing it in the northwest of England. The, the patients who have already had heart problems, their wearables will monitor them. And if they've got an abnormal heart pattern, 
they, they will flag up to their doctor and they'll be asked to come back in for follow-up treatment. Well, that sounds great, frankly. That sounds like a really good thing. Uh, it's, it's a kind of early warning system for patients already at risk. But if we look at this more broadly and say, are we thinking then that patients will be nudged into healthier lifestyles so they don't need treatment in the NHS? That's where I think we should ask some questions, like, well, what is the NHS for? Is the NHS to stop us living unhealthy lives so that we don't need to be a burden on the NHS? Or is it there to treat us when we fall ill? Uh, whose job is it to judge what unhealthy habits we should be allowed to choose for ourselves? If, if I'm going to go in and my, my kind of universal data monitor thing will tell the doctor that I've been buying pies for the last 20 years, are, are they going to say, well, I'm sorry, you know, you're at the bottom of the list for this knee operation because we have another patient here who's been jogging and not buying pies and they're a deserving case <laughs> and you're not. And, you know, you may laugh, but there are already hospitals saying to fat people and smokers, you've gone to the bottom of the list for this because you are a smoker or you are overweight. And is this, you know, is this where we want to go? So uh, can, can technology save the NHS? I don't know if it can save it. It can improve the NHS. <clears throat> but what I'm worried about is that technology might be used to save the NHS from us, the patients. And that's something I think we should worry about. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so already a good debate um, covering a lot of areas. So... Um, it's very useful what people have said. So we need to situate this in a broader kind of social, uh, even economic context of how we access services. I mean, for my mind, perhaps in terms of technology, a bit like Isabel was doing in your work, um, some of the kind of the cat is out of the bag because a lot of technology companies are sort of easing the pressure to a large extent that this big, big bureaucratic, perhaps too complicated institution can't sort of itself kind of change or repair itself. Um, and then we have, you know, what Tamandra is just saying about does it even, this debate, fit into the broader kind of preventative health agenda where technology is uh, being used in a quite a divisive way, um, which, again, is a quite an interesting kind of thing to perhaps explore, depending on what you think yourselves as the audience. So, look, so over to you now. <clears throat> I was very interested in Tamandra's point about, you know, monitoring yourself. Which to me, I don't actually like, like, like wearing things too much of a private person, but I've actually been in contact with the NHS a couple of times, and, you know, it can be quite useful, but, you know, getting NHS point is difficult. They have, they have to prioritise people, question of triage. Is it the sort of thing that technology can help? On the one hand, I had a problem with a hernia, I had a strangulated hernia, and in one case they actually said, well, this is the next appointment in, um, in A&E, which is very good. I had a hemorrhoid, I didn't think it was that important, rang up, NHS direct for um, a reassurance. Basically, oh yeah, we think you better go and see someone. Say whether it was casualty or whatever. Well, in the end, I stopped with my pharmacist and he gave him hemorrhoid cream. But to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, I mean, uh, fashion route. <laughs> did, did, did they mean that? Did they mean go to any? I don't know. <laughs> okay, good point. Right, yep, down the front. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I think the, the single biggest problem with the NHS uh, is that it's chronically underfunded. It's um, uh, on any graph over the last 40 years, you can see that we've, as a country, have put in the least amount of money um, per capita uh, in the developed world. And pure and simple, we just need to put more money in per capita. We have to 
do that. That's the simplest uh, uh, problem. So simp simplest way to uh, solve that issue. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is about uh, actually much more about the technology start side of that stuff that we've uh, been talking about. And that is uh, protection of data. Um, and I think that um, uh, we need to realise that uh, privacy has gone out the window already. That boat has sailed. Every one of us will uh, have a problem. And the first thing we'll do is type what issues, what symptoms we've got into Google. Google will then log all of that per person. And then uh, when you go to the doctor, you'll come home and you'll probably type in half the stuff that you've got in your local thing. So, so the idea of trying to protect our, da our data and all the rest of it is, yes, there is some stuff that I'm sure the medical uh, community have got that is more detailed. But this, like, really, you know, the, the Google is already getting us to uh, give, hand over our data voluntarily. And, uh, you know, that's just going to continue. The next thing will be x-rays that we, we, we take a picture of and set and put, post online. Okay. So just wanted to say that. Very good. I think also to reflect on that, somewhat you could argue it's a public good to give up some of your personal data in order for everyone else to benefit from a better yeah. health. So someone right at the back. Yeah, right at the back. Hi, uh, my question's on the use of uh, obfuscated or anonymous uh, data uh, and how it can help investment decisions. Uh, just some background, uh, I come from banking technology and 30 years ago, uh, you know, traders uh, would make decisions based on a hunch and computers got in the way of what they were doing. Now, you know, no trader would make a decision uh, you know, if there's a trader still there and it's not an algo decision uh, without analytics, yet... I visit my GP and apart from a patient record system uh, and maybe you know, a, a, a lot more pharmaceuticals they can prescribe, they tend to operate the same way they did in the 1950s. You know, analytics has had very little technology uh, in terms of deciding clinical pathways. Um, due to my background, I was involved uh, with an advanced health analytics project that one of the consultancies were doing. And um, you know, I, was, I was amazed by what some of the predictions they can make in terms of investment. But what scuppered the whole program was the inability to access this data. They expected every patient to opt in with their data rather than opt out. And having this data would have enabled primary care trust to decide on investment, you know, depending on whether they needed to invest more in diabetes or... Uh, you know, if it was a university town on you know, ailments that uh, in the young people, so the, okay. yeah, it's the availability of data and why isn't the health service you know, using this data to make um, yep. informed decisions? Um, there was someone close to you at the back, hands up, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the question, uh, what is the question again? Uh, can technology save the NHS is a really valid question and not one to be ducked um, uh, because I mean, I'd hazard a guess at it, which is that I do think that technology can save... Um, can you hold the microphone a bit closer? I do think that technology can save... Uh, well, can certainly improve the NHS. Um, and if you look at the recent uh, digital roadmaps that everyone's supposed to embrace in uh, the trusts, uh, the focus is very much about how to achieve a paperless... Uh, how to achieve a paperless hospital. Um, and... and, and I think with that comes all sorts of really positive uh, angles. Certainly from a patient point of view, the whole patient experience can be hugely improved through um, some of the, the, the um, 
the, uh, the ways that people explained earlier. I guess the more pressing point is, will it, you know, will technology save the <laughs> NHS? And I want to uh, just uh, share a, uh, an experience I had recently. I was at a hospital in uh, Nijmegen in the, the Netherlands this week, and what was really interesting is that this hospital, within three years, managed to achieve a paperless um, state. Uh, they, um, you know, uh, showcased the hospital to all hospitals in Europe, and, and it is really an amazing experience. It's, uh, located in a fabulous campus, so patients not just get, um, you know, clinical care, but they also have a wonderful um, environment in which to recuperate. I'll speed up. Um, <laughs> what's actually um, really distinguished this hospital is that they've, they've not had a mandate from politicians to do this, uh, so no five-year forward plan, and uh, it's funded privately. Um, I mean, there is some government funding, but they certainly found ways of funding it privately through insurance. But the, the key thing is that, you know, they have an ambitious and visionary team. Uh, so the question is, how can we actually, you know, um, introduce some of this thinking into the NHS <coughs> so that we can optimise technology? Okay, I'll take one more. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was um, interested to hear what Tamanda was saying about can it save us from us. And, um, I mean, I think artificial uh, intelligence probably will save the NHS, uh, primarily by rendering humans obsolete and... Um, and dispensable, and... Uh, Are you a transhumanist? Well, I'm only starting to dabble in it, but I can see there's definitely some... some uh, there's some depth to that thought, yeah. I think the, the, the question obviously has two dimensions, at least two dimensions, but it is an important part of the question. Whilst artificial intelligence can be brought to bear on the systems which the NHS currently has, for instance, just keeping data and so on, it is also going to transform society in a broader sense, and it's obviously enabling companies like Google and so on to become extraordinarily profitable and yet to pay very little in taxes towards the system which supports the NHS. It creates uh, an ever larger proportion of humanity within the United Kingdom, uh, which is uh, living on tax credits as much as it is on the earnings which it generates through its own labor. And this is going to have an impact on how the NHS is funded in the future. The other thing I wanted to say okay. just very quickly is, does it actually in the long term help if you keep people alive or if you keep them healthy, if you encourage them not to eat pies and to go jogging? Are you just delaying the point at which they clutter up hospitals? Or are you actually, you know, helping them to die quickly and cleanly and be snipped off like a, you know, um, dog's what's it at the end of it all? You know, it's a very wow. difficult question. I, I, I assume there is data on this, but I don't have it, I'm afraid. Euthanasia. Uh, OK, good, good. Uh, well, what I'm going to do is I'm bringing the panel in now because uh, we're going to get a few more rounds. So do... Um, keep your questions in mind you know so we've got the idea of self-monitoring wearables can it actually be a good thing if you've got an acute condition uh you know the nhs as someone said is chronically underfunded so therefore you know is it more a question of kind of putting some big money into it um the issue has come up a couple of times about privacy data protection even as i ask you know can it be a good thing we kind of give away our data to help uh, uh, kind of better ourselves as a society uh and also just the idea i think as someone said about how do we get innovations into the NHS, perhaps again through kind of data uh, as a way of doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, the kind of point about artificial intelligence and uh, is it actually a good thing to kind of keep us alive for longer? So, who wants to go first? Can I start with the, the gentleman at the front? I mean, you, 
I think the question was, can you use uh, things like wearables and self-data to help hospitals? Certainly, some work we've been doing in Bath with rheumatologists there is that the patients will log on the computer, whatever, with their wearables, and the, and the system would know how better they're getting or not, and it would then um, access the hospital and say, you need to see the clinician, or you need to see the nurse, or you need to see the therapist. And it would triage independently before they go in. And that makes a huge difference into efficiency. The patient's journey is one journey which is most efficient. So it can be used very well. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm very interested in the lady who uh, was talking about that hospital in Nijmegen, and partly because I've got a visiting professorship in, with the university that links to that hospital. I think it's a, it is a very, very interesting example. Uh, and I think when you're looking at something which is hugely complex, one of the most enlightening things you can do is to find an example of somewhere where it works and then to say, well, hang on a minute, what are the differences? Because we can't solve this in the abstract. We have to look at concrete examples, and, and this is a great one. So what's the big difference between the Dutch healthcare system and the UK system? One of the differences is that the Dutch healthcare system is much more local or regional. There is much less... Um, dominance from national government you know this country has the most over-regulated healthcare system the most over-regulated public sector in the world I think now there's a round of applause here now this is quite this is very very important for the uh, question why do we have so many failed IT projects and why does the Netherlands have fewer failed IT projects so for example guidelines in the Netherlands clinical guidelines I don't think I've ever met a Dutch doctor that is opposed to guidelines. You go come to the UK, a lot of doctors are opposed to guidelines because as far as they're concerned, they come from the government. Um, now, what on earth is all that about? Let me give you an example. Anyone been involved with Choose and Book? Choose and Book was, uh, yeah, you put hands up. Okay, so this is the idea. You go to your GP, you've got something, you need to be referred to the hospital, and then the doctor would press a button, up would pop a list of hospitals, and then you'd pick one and you'd be referred. Magic, you'd get your date then and there. Absolute unmitigated disaster. Nobody liked it. The GPs resisted it. Why? Because it wasn't just book. It could have been book, and that would have worked, but it wasn't. It was choosing book because the government wanted to introduce competition between hospitals and get the GPs to say to the patients, would you like to go to this dermatology clinic or that one or that one or that one? And the idea was that... that the GP would become the broker of some kind of competition policy and that the bad dermatology clinics would go out of business. GPs didn't like that because it was a fundamental threat to their professional autonomy and their professional role. They, they didn't see themselves as, uh, as an instrument of government, I think quite rightly. Dutch GPs introduced a very similar um, booking system, which was just called book. I mean, it wasn't, but you get my point. Um, the touch was. But, but when you think about technologies in the NHS, very often, the reason why Jeremy Hunt is on the soapbox about, you know, whatever it might be, the seven-day NHS, et cetera, et cetera, is that they see professional practice and the technologies that support professional practice as an instrument for implementing government policy. Small wonder that the clinicians resist it to the hilt, uh, and small wonder that we can look outside the UK for examples where the technology works better. Okay, I mean that's very much kind of what you're arguing, I guess, to Andrew. Well, they, that's well, yeah. I mean, I think the, the point of professional judgment and professional responsibility is is absolutely key here. And yeah, most people on the panel have said it doesn't doesn't technology doesn't replace human judgment, and I, I think that's right. But but I think there is also the danger that 
if, if you have a big data system that decides who's a top priority and what a risk factor is, then that does start to erode, erode human judgment. And what doctor is going to stand up and go, well, I'm going to ignore what the computer says and make my own professional decision, knowing that then they might get sued for ignoring what the computer says. So I, I, think, I think that is an issue. I mean, I want to say something on data, because it's, it's come up a few times, talking about privacy. Uh, I haven't quite given up on privacy principle myself. Is, is it a public good? Is donating your data for research a public good? I, I think there's an argument that it is. The health data is very tricky, because it's extremely personal. If somebody mm. gets your, your genomic data... That's you. You can't you can't go and get a new genome <laughs> like you can a new driving license or a new bank card. Uh, by the way, if anyone's tempted to send off to 23andMe and get their genome analysed and find out about their ancestors, they keep your genetic data and they sell it to people for advertising purposes. So don't. Uh, but but I think in general, you know, we we should recognise that our data is a potential public good and that if if the NHS has our data, it can plan for our future needs and so on, and that, that is a good thing. But I think the reason why we don't necessarily trust the NHS with our data is because we don't necessarily trust this agenda. And, 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 and perhaps we're right not to. If it's going to be used not only to treat us better and develop new treatments and to plan what hospitals we'll need, but also to... Uh, to say, oh well, in the, to say in the future you can't have this treatment because we have your data and you don't fall into the right category, then maybe we've got a point being worried. I just want to very briefly reply to, to Simon, it, it, the man who was on the panel for the satire session when he said, is it necessarily a good thing to keep people alive uh, and maybe we should let them drink and smoke themselves to death. But there is a serious point there, as you'd expect from a satirist. The serious point is, well... You know, what, what is the point of an NHS that, on the one hand, nudges us to giving up all our unhealthy habits and then at the end of life says, well, are you still around, costing the NHS money? Can't you, can't you decently shuffle off and, and stop, stop being an expense? You know, maybe, maybe it's up to us. Maybe we'd like to live faster and die younger. And maybe that's not the NHS's business. Surely prevention is better than cure. You know, that we can get you to stop smoking and drinking so much in your comedy clubs. <laughs> you'll not cost us so much eventually. That's that you, long time since you've been in a comedy club. You can't <laughs> smoke there. I, okay. look, I think it's fair enough for doctors. If I was a doctor, I'd be going, look, honestly, you will save yourself a lot of future suffering if you stop smoking. I think it's absolutely fair enough. But I think you have to have that conversation with people as rational mm -hmm. beings and accept that some people will go, I know, I, I, I know you're right, but nonetheless, I'm going to choose to, I'm going to choose short-term pleasure. And pay for it in the long run, and it's my life. Okay, Terry. Well, it's hard to top that. <laughs> uh, but actually, I, I, I'll try. Um, just just to expand on that point, though, I think the the other side of it is uh, that we, as a society, need to ask ourselves at, when people are reaching the end of their life, and given that technology such as we're talking about can keep people going for much longer in ways that we never imagined even five, ten years ago. Um, but but it may be keeping them going with quality of life that's absolutely awful, pathetic. It's just basically in existence. Uh, is that a good use of technology in terms of that person? Um, I think that is a conversation because of the, the fact that we do make a social investment in people through the NHS or you know the Australian system, whatever. Um, but... Uh, Look, I think it's important, if we are going to talk about uh, the use of technology innovation 
in in the health system. Uh, it's clear from from what everybody else on the panel has said that at the micro, on the ground level, it's a great thing. Uh, it can it be transformative. It can be innovative. It can uh, be uh, promoting efficiency. Um, and I think that that needs to be encouraged. But I go back to the point I was making before. I think at the systemic level, at the at the macro level, at the you know, you have to ensure that the perceptions of the system don't change. If, if it basically, it, you know, the way we interface with technology and uh, you know the way that clinical practice interfaces changes, and that changes the character of the the NHS as a whole. That is a problem, a challenge for any health. Health, health minister to, to deal with. And the other thing I'd just like to quickly point out, I think drawing on some of these th questions, is that uh, um, innovation in this area in healthcare generally needs to be patient-centred. Uh, uh, it it may, like, may make the life of clinicians a lot easier, and I, I do think my favourite episode of Yes Minister is the one where the, uh, Jim Hacker is up, upset about the hospital that has no patients, but the, the, the administrators and the doctors absolutely love it because they don't have to worry about their patients. Um, I, I think any, any change has to be seen, perceived, sold as patient-centred. If it's not centred on, on the patient, on improving their experience, on improving their outcomes... It's just not going to be sellable at all. So Could I kind of push a little bit on that? Because um, Push away. <laughs> because in policy circles, especially in this country, for maybe five, ten years, it all has been very patient-centred. It's been one of the ways they've tried to enact change against perhaps the old-fashioned, dare I say, clinical practice. Now you need to listen to your patients and to write in an understandable kind of handwriting style. You know, so how do you kind of... That you've got to you've got to uh, you've got to actually walk the walk as well as mm. talk the talk. I agree with that. But we're talking about uh, we're talking about a wave of change, a wave of technological change. I've talked about Watson uh, that is absolutely going to re revolutionise uh, if it's adopted on a mass scale. The way that uh, you know, clinical practice is, is undertaken, uh, 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 in, including throwing up ethical questions, as you know, as uh, as, as Tricia was saying, that uh, say say uh, uh, if if you use Watson to go through the massive literature, to go through the massive uh, uh, de-identified case data. You know, so so that, that they do use data in that context. Um, and then you get a hierarchy of recommended treatments according to the literature as it's been processed. And you go for number three rather than number one. You know, that, that could expose you to all sorts of risks. But it could also expose the patient to risk as well. So, um, so I, I think... Uh, Put aside the political rhetoric of patient-centred. I mean, we're talking about genuinely making the system work for patients because if it's a, it's there for the convenience of con, of clinicians and administrators, it's just a waste of time. Okay, Isabel. Yeah, um, I would second that. Uh, the fact that um, like making a tool for patients is is basically everything because if you don't, like with the patients that I worked with as well, if you don't make it um, work for them, um, they will never get the same, the treatment that they need or they will never kind of accept this, the treatment that they actually want as well and it has to work for them. And so I think that is a very valid point. The other thing around the hospitals, I just wanted to chip in, there's actually one hospital in the UK that I know Alder Hay Hospital, which is a children's hospital in Liverpool. And they are very, like, 
they work in a very patient-centric way. They work with kids, obviously, it's a children's hospital. But they work in a very innovative manner as well, so they kind of embrace technologies. And I think from all the hospitals that I've worked with, they're kind of the only one really that are pushing forward this kind of, we work with kids, we would need to develop care for kids and use technology around that to help mm. kids in this way. And if you go into the hospital, I haven't been, colleagues of mine have been, it, it doesn't look like a hospital as well. It's very much adapted to kids. And I think that goes as well for adults as well. When you go into a care, you actually want to go into care where you, one, want to receive the care that is made for you in the, the way that will help you get better, but that also um, just transforms the way that it takes you away from like this pure hospital kind of environments and bureaucrats, bureaucratic environments. But um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to ask a question around data, actually, um, like who in the audience would sell their, uh, would kind of um, give up their data privacy for finding a cure for a certain rare disease, for example, or has done it already? Okay, that's very interesting. That's quite encouraging. Very interesting, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think uh, I mean I think it's a very valid discussion around data privacy. It's only good, like in May in 2018 there will be more regulations coming into place for companies, especially to make sure that data privacy is assured and non-data is going out to for the wrong reasons. But I think down the line it all comes down to transparency. If companies are from the beginning, transparent with people or hospitals with people. This is your data. If you give it to us, this is what will happen to it. And you can give your consent then. You, for, you can't give your consent. You can kind of deny giving your consent. But as long as they're transparent, because as soon as companies start like um, 23andMe, for example, if they are not transparent about what is happening to your data, and then they're selling it to third parties, other companies, pharmaceutical companies. You basically don't know where your data will end up. And I, then, then I think that is very uh, unethical. And yeah. Okay. So, so more, more questions. So, so I've um, had a fair amount of experience working with technology in the NHS, um, designing systems that touch on a lot of patient record systems. Um, and guidance systems, clinical guidance systems, that are algorithms ultimately um, in some way but they're there to support people. And also working on political hot potatoes like the NHS Choices site, which amongst its political parts has some very useful content and data, yeah. which has been very useful to the world. Um, but I didn't agree with many things that I was working on on that project. Um, and I have recently actually um, given all my data to 23andMe and got my, uh, you know, my data back and actually given more information to them on the follow-up questions which have probed me on much more interesting ways than actually maybe the saliva might have given me. That's been much more insightful if I could then push that information to my patient record, for example. But the big problems I've seen having worked within the NHS are largely in terms of the technology, apart from um, the, the generally... Uh, laggards conversations that are had in the, the meetings, thinking across all the edge cases and the risk rather than the potential value. And it limits a lot of the progress I've seen. Um, and a big problem with the National Programme for IT was largely because of the lack of integration of all these said patient records and all the other data sources that we could potentially have. Um, so I think the risk of actually all this privacy, uh, the privacy of your information kind of 
been um, compromised, I think is actually very low because I don't think even the NHS can get access to a lot of this data themselves. So I really think there's a really good opportunity for, for integrating that data better for the greater good, for your own good, and I'd like to see more progress. I see it coming out from the outside in. Okay, the NHS. good. Behind, yeah. Just like to make some comments on the basis of what we've heard so far, um, and I think that the comment that was made that one of the big problems with the NHS is it's very much top down, and it's a national service, and standards come out nationally. And in fact, whether you're going to have change, whether you're going to have a good group practice that works efficiently, whether you're going to have a hospital that is efficient and caring, ultimately comes down to the will of the people involved and the will of the clinicians and their will to innovate. One of the things that was handed down from on high was, and you referred to it, patient involvement and we should be patient focused. And it's got to a stage in many places, I've been involved in patient involvement, patient in focus, and it can happen also, it's the same with local authorities. For, for a number of the, the health, um, health trusts, it was just a tick, tick box system. And patients were spending an awful lot of time very constructively making constructive suggestions but they were never carried through, and you got total disillusionment. On the other hand, I went, I've been involved in some meetings recently, and it's actually um, one of the same, I've been involved with their trusts, but one of those trusts, there has been a change in personnel at the top, and suddenly the whole situation is different, and you can see ideas are coming up, from staff, from patients, and they're running with them. It's happening. Okay. And the complete change round that you get in that situation, and I think it's the same with technology, if I just briefly, I don't want to talk too much. Sure, sure. I've been involved with a hospital that, um, where everything is done on patient records, but they keep losing them. You keep having the same tests done at huge expense mm. over again because one section of the hospital can't access another. It's an absolute nightmare. Now, just down the road in London, there is a highly efficient hospital. Everybody loves to go to it. All the staff recognise it's efficient. And you never have to wait. You get a faster Can you tell us which no. one it is, please? Yeah. Can I just uh, <laughs> 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 very quickly, went in, saw the consultant. Oh, you're using paper records. Yes, we find it much more efficient. Yep. And yep. they had the complete history. Which one was that, please? <laughs> you can tell you after. Oh, <laughs> right. uh, two, two, three here, so yeah. Um, okay, and then the two behind as well. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to support what this gentleman in the front said. I, I, I work as a software developer in the NHS. Oh, and right. uh, <laughs> it, it's interesting that we all always talk about the NHS as if it's one entity. But it, it's, it's yeah. an agglomeration of lots of different institutions, and they've all got their own political agendas. Uh, I work in a large trust, and even within that trust, it, it's, it's a political quagmire. And getting things done it is now an impossible. 
And I've been working as a developer in the NHS for 10 years now. And what I find is there's, there's, we're not actually encouraged to go and speak to clinicians. We're, we're actually actively discouraged from doing it. And until you know, the people developing the software get to work with the clinicians, I don't think we're going to make any progress. OK. Um, two behind, yeah. Choose. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks. So um, my question, I guess, when we have innovation, we think very carefully about what we're going to do, which hopefully we're doing now. But we also want to try things out and run trials and learn from that. So there's a, a question really about uh, how can more better and more informative trials be run uh, in uh, this kind of sector. Uh, I mean, if there's an 80% failure rate with uh, IT projects, if that's projects that has been decided you're going to roll out everywhere, that's pretty bad. If you have 80% of trials that fail and you find 20% that really work and then you can go for it, then... Uh, then you're in, in much better shape. So uh, are we doing the right kind of trials and could we be doing better in that direction? Hiya, thank you. Um, I have a question that's probably not exactly related to what we've been talking about, but it's, I just, I'm just curious for what you think. Um, what kind of technology do you think exists or can be created, innovative technology, uh, in regards of helping the NHS with mental health patients? Um, so, for example, I know there are many projects around the world that's been going on for years in chatbots, AI, intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence, that can talk to you like a real person. Um, I'm a residential warden in my university schools of residence, and in the past three years we've been noticing significant raise in mental health uh, um, problems with students coming to study at my university. Um, and we've had a spike of suicide attempts. And my role is that, you know, I have to provide first aid and call an ambulance. So I'm wondering, there is support networks which I'm aware of, crisis lines, etc. Is there technology that exists or could be created that could further help young people in halls of residence or anywhere else? Thanks. Good. Um, so kind of similar stuff going on in Japan, in a sense, with the kind of elderly and using kind of uh, uh, robots and computing to be kind of aware of their their mental health and physical states. So there's lots of interesting stuff going on. And I think I'll get the panel in because I think we had about four or five questions all talking about the lack of design or joined up thinking in terms of the NHS. Kind of perhaps comes back to what you were saying earlier. Is it just too complicated, too well, too complex in your words, to really affect, I guess, in any meaningful way throughout design engineering? And of course yourself, you're an engineer. You know, yeah. How do you kind of respond to these points yeah. as well? So I, was, I was intrigued by the question down the front, really, and I think it's about collaboration. Certainly, there's a comment that IT aren't allowed to talk to clinicians. And I, I agree, that's a real problem. And certainly, in, in my trust, we had a clinical group which met with the IT every month and talked with them and think. And certainly, with the Royal Camera Engineering, we're doing a lot of stuff on system thinking. How mm. can we get all the stuff to join together? And we've, we've just produced this report. It's a, it's a fantastic document. But mm. how we did it... We got clinicians, we got public health workers, we got medics and engineers who are expert in systems, not in health, all meeting together yeah. to actually understand their languages. And I think once that started happening, it's been a, it was a great journey. And we're trying to now implement all this stuff, how to get the systems talking to each other and working well together with that. Could I just push a little bit? Because we've known the NHS has been... In bit difficult to kind of really influence for a, a good number of years. So what is it perhaps about now that enables you to now try and get those ideas through? 
Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good question, uh, um, Martin. I think the thing is, it's sometimes timing is good. I think we've got a, a group of people coming together saying we've got to do something about this. The whole system is failing. And I think in, in the media, the word system failing is used a lot. So certainly in, in the Royal Academy, we engineers understand systems. And they, they got together with the health people and said, OK, what can we do about this to make it work? So I think it's timing. We realise we've got to do something about it because the system's actually broken. OK, who else wants to come back and say his points? Yeah, yeah maybe I just, as an engineer as well, or, and, as, and as, as a founder of a startup that works in a very different way as a big organisation. We work in a very agile way. I do software development as well. And the first two months that when I started my startup, I didn't do any development. I was with users, so custom, uh, I was in the hospitals, I was talking to patients, I was talking to clinicians, I was talking to physios, occupational therapists, to really understand what their needs were, because I could have started the first day of founding my company, but then I would have ended up with a product that might not have been useful, because, for example, I could give an example of a stroke patient, for example, when I met with the physio, she was like, one thing you have to be careful about, if you let them do fast movements, they will, uh, it will induce spasticity in the arm, which will reduce, which will reduce, the, of course, their motiv increase uh, frustration and basically um, because their muscles uh, um, contract very rapidly together, they won't, they don't want to do the exercise anymore, they will tune out. So that was a very simple thing, but it was a big change to my development process because I would have, I might have implemented fast movements and that goes across other technologies as well. If you don't make a, a technology for the person that you're making it for, don't make it because, or, or it will, won't be used as well because I've, there are apps from the NHS, for example, that I've seen and tested, but they, when you then read the comments and the reviews, they would install it the first week and then they uninstall it because it doesn't address necessarily the need that they actually want to, that you want to have addressed. And yeah, I think very much that interaction is, is it's key. It's the most important thing, I think. Okay. Yeah. Terry? Um, I was interested in the comment about uh, the laggard conversations. Uh, I think uh, I was talking before about, at the macro level, uh, policymakers particularly seem to be focusing on healthcare models of the last 50 years, not the next 50 years. And clearly that happens uh, you know, on the shop floor as well. And that's uh, it's very much a feature in Australian practice. Uh, um, and there are great disconnects, I think, between uh, uh, technological experts and, and clinical experts. And, uh, um, and, and that comes down to even basic things, like uh, I think in, you know, in my home state of Victoria, we spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on a, a U-Butte super connectivity computer system so, so that uh, clinicians at different hospitals could talk to each other. And it uh, turned out that... All the different hospitals or, or the, the region, health services uh, had different specifications and they forgot <laughs> that they needed to actually talk to each other as opposed to talk to themselves. Um, so that was uh, half a billion dollars down the drain. Um, and it, it also strikes me, uh, just in sort of thinking about this and hearing some of the questions, that, um, and I think it would be the same here as in Australia, that when we talk about innovation, we're talking about huge, uh, or, or technology of this sort, we're talking about huge... Uh, capital and recurrent cost investments. Uh, but uh, the public uh, and the politicians who want to keep the public happy uh, realise that uh, although, say, particularly algorithmic innovation, uh, we could make uh, uh, quite a lot of radiologists overnight, redundant overnight, for instance, because of the, you know, the fact that uh, with uh, Watson-level algorithms, you can actually 
uh, do job far better and far more accurately than even an, an experienced specialist can. But uh, who's going to get uh, who's going to give uh, uh, the P45 to the to, to the radiologist? I don't think any brain game politician will do that. So, uh, because the public wants doctors, they want nurses, they want uh, hospital beds, but things they're familiar with as well as this change. So when we're talking about saving the NHS, it may be that we're, we're risking spending too much that we can't afford to keep it going in the way we want to. Can I kind of, I mean, pose it to everybody as well, because there must be some truth in the fact that there is this kind of, you know, growth, or at least the potential about artificial intelligence you know, kind of computing or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, in the context of health. So there must be something kind of quite real about this and it's happening. Yeah. I mean, what, I can give, sort of driving it? You, I can give the example of Babylon. I don't know if you know Babylon. It's a uh, GP, GP app. Yeah. So it's an app on your phone and you basically it's like a digital GP. At the moment, it's just a symptom checker. So you could speak to it. You could say... I'm not feeling well, I have a cold, for example. And then you could say it speaks back to you. It would ask you questions. Do you have a fever? Uh, if not, then it goes further. And then basically it would kind of list your symptoms. So it's not yet the diagnostics yet where it would actually replace your doctor because then it will take their app to another level with different types of regulations. But they're kind of... So they work, obviously, with, it's purely based on artificial intelligence, machine learning in their system um, by using these symptom checkers and going back to you to ask the questions. Okay. And I'll so that's, Mandra. and they work with yeah. DeepMind, for example. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there definitely is potential for AI, and, and I think the, the kind of the deep learning model is particularly good at analyzing images. So there are, mm. there are a number yeah. of pilot schemes mainly yeah. Google DeepMind, although I think IBM Watson is also doing uh, stuff more about literature trawls and matching yeah. patients to clinical trials, possibly more in the US. But this is, I was interested in your thing about pilots and for innovation, you would actually want to run small-scale pilots and see what works and be able to do things quite quickly and see what works and junk the ones that don't and develop the ones that do. And somebody earlier mentioned the digital roadmaps and different NHS trusts have been set up as kind of digital standard bearers to, to develop new technology and use things. Um, the, the remote monitoring I mentioned earlier for heart patients was one of those. But I think this, this brings us back to one of the, the problems here. So a number of projects have been developed by Google DeepMind with different NHS trusts. Um, there was one at the Royal Free, which was about... It was really just about getting patients' test results quicker to doctors when the test results flagged up a danger of acute kidney injury. So it was quite a straightforward thing, but they they didn't they seemed very unaware of the implications of giving patient data to Google DeepMind, which was a private company, for the purposes of doing this trial, and it backfired and blew up in their face and probably has set back that kind mm. of technology. Mm. And this brings us back to this question of trust, that you know, we have to have reason to trust both the NHS and potential private collaborators with our data, and... If we are concerned about the direction in which the NHS is going in terms of rationing treatment to us on the basis of who we are, then you know, we actually have rational reasons to doubt that. Most people actually are not that bothered about their private data getting into the wrong hands. They're quite sanguine about that. They are more worried about being profiled and put into a population which is then somehow regarded as either in need of unwanted attention or 
not eligible for, for treatment. And I mean, I think your point about constantly talking about the risks and not the benefits, and therefore maybe not pursuing the benefits as hard and fast as we could, is also pertinent. That there is a danger that we spend all our time talking about the potential downsides and don't actually grasp the great things technology mm -hmm. could do. But for that, you often have to look outside the technology. You have to look at the context of why don't people trust? I mean, come on, everybody loves the NHS. Why wouldn't we trust the NHS with all our data? Well, there are reasons for that, and we have to kind it. of look at those. <laughs> I don't think it is even just that, though. I don't think it's even just that. Um, I want to talk, first of all, about the patient, and then I want to come back to AI, because mm -hmm. I, think, I think that tension between the individual patient and, and the whole sort of potential of AI is, is, is absolutely the nugget of what we're in this room for. But a gentleman, and just close to the front, asked about mental health, and I think you know, this is the week where Bristol University had its sixth undergraduate suicide in a year. That is horrific. And I absolutely agree with my colleague here who, who works in that area that this is something, why can't we, if, if we can't use technology to help with that, but I think if you were that, you know, a student in distress, I'm not sure that you really want IBM Watson. I think you want to contact a health professional very, very quickly. And, and that doesn't mean that technology doesn't help. Technology might help hugely. My son is a junior doctor at the moment. He was, he was in a psychiatry clinic the other day. He said to me, there's no patients here. None of them have turned up. Now, I'm doing a research project into Skype consultations, and we've got them going in, in a couple of trusts in London. And after five years, half a million pounds, the big block to Skype consultations, you know, very simple piece of technology or FaceTime or any one of half a dozen other ways of videoing the patient seeing the nurse or the patient seeing the doctor, the big block is tariff. Tariff, uh, and we're working directly with Simon Stevens' team and they can't crack it for some ridiculous policy regulatory reason. How much is the provider going to get paid for doing a consultation remotely compared to doing one face-to-face -face or by phone? They go round and round on that. So let's, um, the, the idea, if the technology is with us already, and very often these issues are institutional, regulatory, quasi-legal in the sense that it might be what people believe the law to be rather than what the law actually says. Those kind of issues are central, not marginal. Okay. Come back to just um, artificial intelligence, because there's something I really sure. need to say. Your data on your paper record or your data on an unnetworked computer record is your data. Your NHS data combined with everybody else's NHS data in a network system is a potential public good. We've heard that today. However, at the moment, you know, the NHS data set is probably the best data set in the world for training algorithms. Everybody who's developing some kind of technology wants to wants to train their algorithms on the NHS data set because we've got almost complete population coverage in GP records, something like 99% of the population's got a GP record, and almost all of those records are now on the spine, etc., etc., etc. So it's the Wild West, okay? Um, the NHS data set is a goldmine, and private companies are being perceived as speculating. Now, as Tamanda's already said, the, the public trust in the NHS is high. Public trust in private companies speculating with NHS data is very low. And that is a problem that we also need to crack if we're going to make 
any further progress with, with artificial intelligence. Thank you. Terry, do you want to come back very, very briefly? Yeah, I, I just think I fully agree with Trish, uh, but I think it's something that this is given the role of um, transnational companies in, mm. in this space. This is something where we need an international conversation. It's not just a UK thing or Australian thing. We need to actually get an international uh, standard going here to make uh, protect people's interests. Okay, that's good part of place to come back to yourselves. We've now gone international in terms of this discussion, which is very good beyond the NHS's kind of boundary. So. About 10 minutes or less. More questions. So at the back, and then I'll come forward. Um, so in terms of uh, the barriers to transformation, so obviously there's a lot of appetite in terms of moving forward with machine learning, AI, etc. I suppose when it comes to transformation, as the point uh, the lady made at the front earlier, an element of that is about will, so the, the want for kind of clinicians and people within trust to want to change. But also for me, another really important point is the skill. So I suppose my question and my point is, do we have the right levels of digital literacy and technological literacy within the NHS to help drive that change. Good point. Right, so there's someone next to you and then there's a few at the back as well behind you. Uh, right, thanks. Um, the question in the, in the brochure is, can engineering innovations help resolve the NHS funding crisis? And I guess the answer to that may well be yes. But the actual question we should be asking is, does that improve the, the, the nation's health? And I, I know I need to be brief, so I will be. Please. But I, I think it's really important that we also don't forget the, the, the issue about the, the role of professional judgment and unleashing the skills of the people in, in the NHS. They're not just people working hard and doing, it, doing a good job, but a lot of them have got a lot of skills that are not being used we talked about radiologists, I better say I'm from the Society of Radiographers, and there's a lot of radiographers out there who can be di um, diagnosing, uh, you know, reporting on scans, and communicating with the patient, and, uh, and having that human uh, interaction with, with patients that, of course, is so important when you have to tell them either good or bad news. Hi there. Um, I'm doing a project at the moment with one of the trusts to look more 10 to 15 years out in terms of where genomic medicine, precision medicine, AI, sensors, all of this starts to come together. And one of the interesting things when you look a little bit further out, which may herald some of the bigger, larger benefits that may come from AI, uh, I'll just touch on two of them. One is that at the moment, as many commentators have said, healthcare is very much fragmented. So there's lots of specialists who hold pieces of your health that look after you. And at the moment, there's a tendency to try and put a digital front end or an app onto each of those fragments to therefore create digital fragments of um, digital silos. So it makes no sense looking through an app model to have older people having to have 5, 10, 15 apps to manage different pieces of their health. It's a nonsense. So what's increasingly happening in the private sector and some, uh, is this sort of post-app future with the idea of bringing all of these pieces together inside a virtual assistant who can manage an overall integrated conversation with someone that brings these pieces together. And in bringing the pieces of health together, when looking across all the things that might be going on with you, there's associations that machine learning and AI can start to draw out, which may not exist just in the individual silo, but looking at them in the collective. So that's one thing. The other point I wanted to quickly mention is that some of the big breakthroughs being made in genomic medicine, the look at the, the role of proteins as communicators and inside the body, show that the precursors to a lot of the diseases which are currently treating are now to be manifest in terms of proteins and metabolites. And there are a new bunch of sensors and 
which is essentially a lab on a chip that essentially allows potential in the future to have these chips inserted to be able to indicate or trap the precursors of disease. So we herald a future where potentially getting ill and presenting with symptoms should never really happen because we can detect before you even get the symptoms there's something okay. wrong in earlier interventions. Will the public be up for that? I think that's an interesting good, good conversation. Good question. I like the question. Right, yeah, next to you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things I've been thinking around is this, the history of uh, medicine in the last 100 years. And if you think about antibiotics, there was a lot of kind of framing of antibiotics as a silver bullet. And it's quite obvious the kind of situation we are in just now. And I think there's a risk of framing technology or big data as this kind of silver bullet. And I think one of the things is it may contribute to some efficiency, but inevitably access to this data will also give more insights into health and a kind of increasing medicalization of health to some degree, or life, and uh, therefore expand and actually perhaps create a bigger burden in terms of financial burden of where we want to intervene. So yeah. I think it might actually also have the opposite. Um, I think you mentioned it, but I would just like to know more about how big data would affect the kind of patient-physician bond, how the patient will start losing trust and how that will actually maybe go on to affect the kind of worried well sort of new generation. Yeah. Um, next to you, yeah. Um, my question is about creating like equal medicine, which is something the NHS stands for, having like the same healthcare for everyone, because obviously technology is expensive and some are able to roll out uniformly but there are some like personalised medicine technologies that are going to be expensive. And I was wondering, is there a way to integrate those types of technology into the NHS without creating a postcode lottery like we have with IVF treatment? Me. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's loads of potential for this technology, but I'm wondering whether it is actually going to help the people that need it most. Um, I work with people with severe mental health problems, with heaps of comorbidities, and uh, there can be many barriers to accessing health as, as a consequence. Um, you know, technology and training of technology is one, but also this is a group who've had, well, dealt a really shit hand in, in life and are very isolated um, and also won't um, be that motivated to make changes. And I think it does depend on people being very motivated to engage with whatever health process is going on. Hold on, my phone. I'm very interested in a wearable, which uh, I've got a habit of <coughs> going out sometimes. I've got a lot of little things wrong with me, and when I go, I sometimes have to be resuscitated. So if there was something that warned me, I found that I can sort of put a stop to it, or quite often, not always. But I tell you something, as soon as you mentioned a chip, and first I want to be in control. I don't want you to be in control, sorry. <laughs> and the second thing is the idea of putting a chip, I think it would frighten nearly everybody to death. You'd feel like the dog, wouldn't you? Being chipped, yeah. If you had a chip. Where does it stop? Once you've got a chip, all controls completely... Where does a human stop and the robot begin? That yeah, that's really right. Actually, you've just put your <laughs> Very, very brief. You can have the last, last question. Lucky. So, um, what, what if we had all the technology we already needed in the NHS already, um, and we just hadn't tweaked it right? The right labels, the right design of the forms, most of it's form-driven. Couldn't we get a lot further just by doing that? Okay, good. My 
limited human brain is not going to sum up any of these questions, so we leave that to the panel, who are far more expert than me. So, um, in reverse order, Tamandra, one minute each, and then uh, the tough you. Go for it. Okay, I'm not going to try and answer everything. I'm going to try and pull together three or four of those points. Um, big data in the patient-physician bond, uh, implantable chips that could diagnose before symptoms appear, and, and your thing of the early warning system, but then who's in control if you are, if you are chipped. The, the, thing I, um, the, the thing I didn't say about the, the thumb-size swallowable <laughs> monitor, uh, which was obviously still a very early prototype, uh, the idea of it is that it would sit in your stomach and monitor, because it was in your stomach, it could monitor not only some chemical things, but also things like your heart rate, uh, but that it could also dispense medicine if needed. Uh, because it and it could be controlled by an app on your phone or something just outside the body, and I expected to hate this idea because, I, like you, I'm like I want to be in control, and also I really value the professional relationship with with the doctor and the doctor's professional judgment and the doctor's responsibility and the doctor's humanity to to know kind of how to break news to me and how to try and convince me I should change a habit or not. Uh, but actually, I loved the idea. I loved the idea that I would have something inside me that would mean I could forget about my health. I could not think about my health. I could not think, should I worry about that? Should I not worry about that? Should I go to the doctor? Uh, I actually really liked the idea that that could cut out me having to think all the time about my health and only go to the doctor when there was something to worry about. So, you know, if it can do that, then bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause at the end, uh, Isabel. Uh, yeah, I was interested in the person with the 10 to 15 years, the futurist. Yeah. Um, yeah, the virtual assistant, I think it definitely has a future and it is not something that is um, not realistic because already now within virtual reality, there are like interactions being uh, set up that avatars are being made, you can interact with people across the world, you don't have to be in the same place. Also, augmented reality can allow you to engage with um, any type of screen form, any type of form that you would interact with the other person. You could exchange information in a very easy way uh, and at the same time have these kind of machine learning systems behind it at the same time as well. Bringing, um, I mean, already now um, surgeries are being done in... There was a surgery three weeks ago um, with, with at Royal London Hospital with Shafi Ahmed. He's kind of the surgeon in VR doctor. And so they did a surgery on three different locations with the HoloLens. So basically, they use holograms of organs or what they were... Oper oh, yeah, what they were operating on. So, um, so, yeah, I think it's a very, very interesting. And it's definitely not science, science fiction, I think. So. Thank you. Um, Terry, one mm. minute. Right. Um, <laughs> don't forget the role of patient judgment. Fully agree. Uh, I think that came up a couple of times. Uh, in terms of uh, you know being chipped so that my wife can fetch me when I come from the RSPCA, I, I think that's uh, that's something that uh, we have to have an ethical debate about. Uh, I think there are two pros and cons of that. Um, but I'd just like to leave you with a reality check, actually. And uh, what I do, what I'd like you to do is to uh, go to YouTube and put in pigeons cancer detection. <laughs> Because if you do that, you'll, you'll see that uh, a couple of years ago, the University of Iowa actually trained <laughs> pigeons to detect malignant uh, uh, patterns in breast cancer scans. 
Um, and they did that with an 85% success rate individually over, after 15 days training and a group accuracy of 99%, which is something that is comparable to radiologists or specialists of 15, 20 years standing. So when we talk about the wonders of technology, just, just think that that little thing in your head can still do a great, great deal of good. So next time you walk around Trafalgar Square, take out more... Oh, she's in there. Um, yeah, great, great discussion. I think the one thing I want to throw in at the end is, I'm going to sum anything up, but people have been talking about professional judgment, and I think most of us in this room are really quite interested in and keen on the potential of technology to improve outcomes, whatever. Um, I used to think of technology as necessarily threatening professional judgment, but I don't do that anymore. There's a great book by Shoshana Zuboff called In the Age of the Smart Machine. It's quite old now, but it talks about the way professional judgment evolves. When you're without, without software, without technology, the professional judgment is directly engaging with the individual or the, or the material stuff that your, your profession's all about. She talks about actually people um, making dyes, but never mind. When you've got technology, when you've got a kind of, you know, you put the lid on the die and you get the dials on top, professional judgment changes. You have to interpret a data stream. You have to decide which dial to look at, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you've got a Fitbit, you, you, you use that data. Um, and, and that becomes quite sort of, it's not as if it's doing it for you. And so I think we need to make sure that patient judgment and professional judgment are not polarised against the potential of technology. It's a bit more sophisticated than that. I think that is quite a positive thing. Perfect. Okay, last. Last, yeah. I was interested, actually, the comment down here about the technology exists, and there's other comments about the fact that they're all in silos. So I think, I think my comment is really, it's a system, in a way, it's got to talk to... The big system has got to join up all the small systems and work together, and that's using the medics, the clinicians, and, and the engineers, and the patients. So I think that's my comment, really. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. now, now we can give our panel a really well-deserved round of applause. <laughs>